We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. You know, what we now understand is that, you know, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by elaborate communities of organisms. And so, you know, the, the practice of fermentation is just, you know, harnessing those microorganisms and, and working with them. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Today, I have Sandor Katz with me. Sandor is a writer with a deep passion for food and nutrition that goes beyond the commonly accepted ideas of, I'm going to put this in air quotes, what's good for us. And he looks deeply into the cycles of growth and decay that actually support all life. He's a self-proclaimed fermentation revivalist, and he sees the microbial and human worlds as being intimately interconnected. And while many of us see the world of bacteria as a threat, in fact, we are absolutely dependent on aspects of the microbial world for our life and our own well-being. Sandar is the author of Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. And he has led workshops throughout the U.S. and around the world on using natural fermentation processes to create live foods that support human life and especially the human gut flora. In our show today, we're going to explore how fermented foods help to restore health or keep you healthy and find out why those bubbling so-called science experiments that we think of as food gone bad just might be nature's way of improving your vitality. Sander, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I can't remember how I ran across your book, Wild Fermentation. Um, it showed up somewhere and... and you know, it might have been because I've been talking to my patients about helping to improve their gut health. So that's how I ran across your book and, and brought you to the show today. What I'm curious to know about is how you found your way into getting friendly with the microbial world. 
Well, uh, you know, there there were definitely um, uh, you know a series of of steps uh, or or um, you know discrete stages that you know marked my developing interest. But as as a kid growing up in New York City, I was not thinking about fermentation or talking about fermentation, but I was appreciating the uh, flavor of sour pickles, what people outside of New York know as kosher dills, uh, which is just like cucumbers fermented with dill and garlic, but um, the lactic acid flavor of those foods really spoke to me. Um, and, uh, and so, so I, you know, I had some sort of a predisposition, um, like many of my Eastern European ancestors to, um, you know, enjoy, uh, this particular flavor of fermentation. Then in my mid twenties, when I was still living in New York city, I got interested in macrobiotics and in the macrobiotic, uh, movement, there was this emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles. And I started noticing during that time that whenever I ate these pickles that I had loved all of my life, I could literally feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva. Um, and so in a very literal sense, I began to associate uh, these pickles and sauerkraut and other related foods with getting my digestive juices flowing. But still, I wasn't making them myself. I had no particular reason to. But in 1993, I moved from New York City to rural Tennessee, and I started keeping a garden. And, um, you know, I was such a naive city kid that I had never thought about the idea that when you're you know, when you have a garden, you know, your whole row of cabbage will be ready around the same time. Your whole row of radishes will be ready around the same time. So what really got me, you know, exploring the practice of fermentation for myself was, you know, this, this extremely practical aspect of fermentation, which is that it's a strategy for preserving food from seasons of relative uh, uh, plenty, you know, to get you through seasons of relative scarcity. So, you know, I learned how to make sauerkraut. I learned how to make the sour pickles I had loved all my life. Um, you know, then I branched out, got into making yogurt, playing around with cheese making, making what we call country wines out of, uh, you know, elderberries, blackberries, other kinds of fruits. And, um, and then I, I just got obsessed with all things fermented and started, you know, exploring how to make miso, how to make tempeh, so lots of different things. You know, I'm just thinking here, you mentioned the sour pickles. And that is one of really it's one one of my earliest memories, I think, because my grandmother made these pickles and they're I mean, there's nothing like those things. There's nothing you can get in a store that comes even remotely close. Um, you know, I hadn't thought of it as a sour taste. I just remember it being this really full flavored I mean it's just kinda of hard to describe because you don't find it in a commercial product. Well, I mean actually there there are commercial manufacturers of fermented pickles. You know, it's not what you it's not what fills supermarket shelves as pickles. And I think there's a certain amount of confusion over, you know, what's the difference between a pickle and something fermented? You know, that's a great question. Let's dig into that. So pickling and fermentation are different concepts that overlap. So I would define a pickle as anything that is preserved in an acidic medium. And that could be, you know, most of what's what we find in the supermarket as pickles basically had hot vinegar, you know, poured over vegetables and then they were heat processed uh, to sterilize them in the um, a jar. And then the vegetable preserves in the uh, acidic medium of the vinegar. 
acetic acid. A very different approach to pickle making, which from my reading of the literature was the predominant way that uh, pickles were made until the middle of the 20th century, was to put the vegetable you wanted to pickle into a salt water medium, a brine. Um, and then let lactic acid that's present on all plant material develop uh, lactic acid, which is a very different flavor from acetic acid. And that's the um, fermentation approach. So fermentation is, broadly speaking, anything, it's the transformative action of microorganisms. So any food or beverage produced by the transformative action of microorganisms. So getting back to pickles, the, you know, the sour pickles of our youth were a product of fermentation. And if they weren't heat processed, then they had live probiotic bacteria, um, you know, teeming through them. You know, most of the shelf-stable pickles that you can buy in the supermarket used a product of fermentation, vinegar, but used that with the application of heat to sterilize vegetables. So there's no particular microbial activity going on. And the vegetables are preserving in the acidic medium, but in a more or less sterile environment. So you have very different kinds of products, very different kinds of flavors. And most of the pickling traditions around the world, you know, historically have been primarily lactic acid ferments in a saltwater brine. It was really, you know, the technology of uh, what we now call distilled white vinegar that was developed in mid-20th century and made vinegar impossibly cheap um, is what really made vinegar pickling so much more widespread. And of course, you know, the advantage that vinegar pickling has is that you have something that is shelf-stable potentially for years. So that has a great advantage for commerce, which is why stores became filled with them, um, you know, as we became more focused on convenience and many of the, you know, sort of older traditions of pickles, which preserve vegetables, but, you know, not necessarily forever or for years, rather as a strategy to preserve them for, you know, some number of months, um, you know, through the season of relative scarcity. So um, they're both pickles. They're both pickles. You know, I'm struck here as we're having this conversation that, that there's this aspect for commercial use where it can be on the shelf for a long period of time. But the fermented foods that you're talking about were meant to get you through a season. So, so these things are still live. They've sort of changed. Well, not sort of. They've profoundly changed their form or they're slowly changing their form. And yet they're stable for a period of months so that it can get you from one harvest to the next. We could not possibly overstate the importance of fermentation to food preservation. I mean, you know, for you know, us talking about this in the 21st century, our, our perspectives on food preservation have been totally warped by the technologies we grew up with. But if we were having this conversation 100 years ago, there'd be no refrigerators or freezers. Um, if we were having this conversation 200 years ago, canning would be a brand new invention that we had read about. But before 200 years ago, fermentation, you know, was one of the only methods we had of preserving food, along with drying food, along with heavily salting food to prevent the growth of microorganisms. And, um, you know, not only sauerkraut and kimchi and pickles 
are strategies for preserving food using fermentation. Yogurt, kefir, and all cheeses are. Um, you know, salamis and other forms of cured meats are, are strategies for preserving food. So, I, I mean, fermentation has, you know, been extremely important for preserving food. I, I was just recently traveling in, in Alaska. And, I mean, basically human habitation of, um, you know, Alaska and other far northern climates, you know, just would have been utterly impossible, you know, without without fermentation, without being, people being able to sort of tap into, you know, the power of this life force that's part of all food and, you know, use it in ways that enable food to be effectively preserved. So often, especially in our modern bacteriophobic world, we think of microbes as being the enemy and the idea is you want to get rid of them and stay away from them. How can we, you know, and, and of course that's true. There, there's certain microbes that are going to make you really sick, right? You drink bad water and, and you're going to have lots of trouble. But there's an awful lot of the microbial world that is vastly supportive of human life, especially our gut. And, and as, as we're just talking about with helping to preserve our foods, what are some of the microbes that we want to get friendly with? Okay, so I mean, you know, any of us who, you know, were born in the United States during the 20th century were thoroughly indoctrinated into what I call the war on bacteria. And it's this, you know, ideology that, you know, bacteria are bad, bacteria should be avoided, and if you should encounter them, then they should be destroyed by any means possible. So, you know, we've been engaged in this war on bacteria and, you know, antibiotic drugs and chlorinated water and antibacterial cleansing products and, you know, it's gotten to the point where there's really there's nothing uh, you know more alluring than that somebody who wants to sell you uh, soap can write on the package than you know adding an antibacterial chemical and then promising that the soap will kill 99.9 percent of bacteria. When in fact, you know, there's really nothing we could do to make ourselves more vulnerable to bacterial illness than to kill 99.9 percent of bacteria. Because what do you think protects us from the point? one percent of bacteria that have the potential to make us sick but the 99.9 percent of bacteria that we can coexist with perfectly uh, well so i mean it's less about specific bacteria and more about creating an an environment so i you know i mean fer fermented foods and beverages are not it's not russian roulette they're not dangerous you know especially when you're in the realm of you know fermenting plant material the, the us department of agriculture statistics are stark um, you know, the number of cases of food poisoning or illness resulting from fermented vegetables in the history of record keeping is zero. So there is just no case history of illness in these types of foods, you know, fermented, uh, you know, raw vegetables. Considering that every year we hear about people getting sick from eating lettuce or spinach or tomatoes or one thing or another, you know, clearly there is the possibility of, um, you know, illness resulting from raw vegetables, you know, because every year there, there are outbreaks. But the process of fermentation actually makes them safer. And if vegetables, you know, happened to have been um, exposed to some sort of incidental contamination in the field or in handling, 
you know, the proliferation of the lactic acid bacteria uh, in the fermentation environment, which is simply submerged, um, you know, underwater and protected from oxygen, they would eat the, the lactic acid bacteria always dominate. And as they acidify the environment, they destroy any of the pathogenic bacteria. You know, the thing about acidification as a strategy for food safety is, you know, all of the food poisoning organisms that, you know, that we worry about, that we've learned the names of. Of, you know, botulism, salmonella, E. coli, you know, none of them can tolerate a very acidic environment. So as the environment of the sauerkraut or the sour pickles or the kimchi acidifies, you know, even if there are pathogenic bacteria present, they perish because of the acidity. So this is really, you know, as much of any as anything, a strategy for food safety. This really flies in the face of, of how we usually think about things, that you just want to cultivate something good or you want to get rid of the bad thing. You're making a case here for supporting a vibrant ecosystem and letting the ecosystem take care of itself. Well, yeah. And when you look at our bodies, I mean, it, it turns out... You know, it turns out that the cells of our bodies, the the cells that reflect our unique individual DNA uh, genetic code that we, you know, received from our parents, those cells are outnumbered by at least 10 to 1 by bacteria that we're host to. And these bacteria aren't, uh, you know, they're not freeloaders, they're not parasites, they're not creating problems for us. In fact, they give us much of the functionality that we have. It's bacteria that enable us to effectively digest food and assimilate the nutrients from that food. Bacteria in our intestines actually synthesize essential nutrients for us so we don't have to find them in our food. Our, our immune system is largely the work of bacteria in our intestines. There's been a lot of exciting new um, information suggesting that uh, serotonin and other chemical compounds in our brains that determine how we think and how we feel are regulated by bacteria in our intestines in ways that we do not understand yet. This has some really interesting implications, especially for people that are taking various medications, ser uh, selective serotonin, uh, take inhibitors and that kind of thing. That So what I'm hearing you say here is, is if the diet allowed for a, uh, let's just say, more vibrant strain or vibrant environment of bacteria in our gut. The bacteria will produce the serotonin. And now our body and our brains and our gut all has more serotonin. Our mood will be different. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we don't know enough about how bacteria in the gut or which bacteria in the gut or by what mechanism they regulate serotonin. Um, so, I, I mean, I would say that, it, you know, it's hard to draw direct therapeutic lessons from the early information that we have. Although, you know, a, a study was published um, just a few months ago where college students were, were asked all these questions about lifestyle and mental health. And this, you know, this study determined that, you know, the young people who were eating sauerkraut and other live culture vegetables experienced much less social anxiety. But I don't think we know enough to sort of give people therapeutic advice. I would say that eating live culture vegetables, eating live culture foods, any kind of live culture foods can potentially improve digestion and nutrient assimilation can potentially improve immune function, can potentially improve mental health. 
which is huge, but I don't think that we can expect, you know, incorporating one single food into the diet to, you know, cure a particular disease, to, you know, to cure depression, to cure cancer, um, to cure irritable bowel syndrome, to cure HIV. Um, I, I mean, certainly, you know, someone living with any of these conditions, you know, could find that incorporating live culture foods contributes greatly to their, you know, improved well-being. But, you know, it's a little bit different than, you know, being like the cure for a condition. Sure. Well, and, and that so often, I think, comes to us through our magic bullet pharmaceutical way of thinking. If I take right. this one magic thing, everything else is going to be okay. And, and it so often is way, way more complex than that. Like, like you were just saying. I think this, uh, so I, I suspect you're familiar with uh, a lot of the news and kind of the hubbub these days around the human biome. Right, uh, of course. Studies and such, yeah. Which it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, this is a whole, this whole microbial world. I mean, you know, up until the dawn of the 20th century, we only knew about the organisms that we could culture, you know, independently in a Petri dish. And, you know, beginning in the final years of, of the new millennium, I mean, we did, we've developed this technology that enables us, you know, by looking at genetics to study microbial communities. And the thing is, micro or except, except in laboratories, microorganisms never exist singularly. That's, that's totally a, you know, a human contrivance, a human invention. You know, in the natural world, in our bodies, in the soil, on the things that make up our food, microorganisms exist in broad communities. And which of them are going to grow depends entirely upon environmental considerations. And so, you know, when I talk about the practice of fermentation, you know, really broadly, you know, the practice of fermentation amounts to small manipulations of um, environmental conditions so as to encourage the growth of certain kinds of organisms while simultaneously discouraging the growth of other types of organisms. So this, this is a great jumping off point here. For a question that I've got, I suspect many of our listeners are wondering, well, how could I do some of this fermentation myself? How could I start to incorporate some live foods? Can you give us some basics on how folks could get started with this? Again, you know, keeping in, well, I don't guess you don't need to keep in mind, you've been doing these workshops for a long time now. You know, we all know that a lot of us are afraid of microbes. How can we sally forth fearlessly and and uh, know that we're not creating a science experiment gone wrong, but actually something helpful for us and nutritious. Well, generally what I recommend for people for a first fermentation experience is fermenting vegetables. You know, sauerkraut, kimchi, something of that sort. Pickles, I would say for the second experiment, I think the method of sauerkraut, which is generically known as the dry salting method, is just easier and more straightforward. So the reason why I think fermenting vegetables is a great place to start is, first of all, you don't need to obtain some kind of a special starter culture. I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of ferments one could make that come from different parts of the world where you have to, you know, somehow obtain a specific starter culture. But with vegetables, all the bacteria you need, the lactic acid bacteria are present on all vegetables. All plants that grow on land on planet Earth have the lactic acid bacteria necessary to initiate the sauerkraut fermentation. Beyond that, 
there's no need for special equipment. I mean, if, if you get into doing it, you might indeed decide that you want to invest in a beautiful, um, elegant ceramic crock, and that's a wonderful thing, and I have lots of them. But you can do it just as well in a jar, like a wide mouth mason jar is ideal, but really any kind of a jar that you might have around in, in your pantry. You know, beyond that, easy, I'll, I'll explain um, in about two minutes time of uh, uh, what's involved and it's delicious. It's supportive of good health. You can enjoy results relatively quickly and there's no danger. There's no case history of, of illness, which isn't to say that nothing can go wrong, but the things that could go wrong will all be, you know, visible and immediately obvious to you. So fermenting vegetables is a great place to start. If you, if you find a quart-sized jar, that'll take about two pounds of vegetables to fill it. Cabbages, radishes, uh, turnips, rutabaga, um, um, you know, these are some of the you know, classic vegetables. But really, there, there's no vegetable that you could not ferment. Um, you know, you could ferment kale just as well as you could ferment cabbage. It has a stronger flavor that you might like or you might not like. So feel free to experiment, but experiment in small batches so you can see, um, you know, which, which vegetables you especially like or don't like. But take about two pounds of vegetables and then thread them. You can, you know, chop them up or use a grater. You're trying to create surface area. It doesn't have to be extremely fine, but the surface area is what's going to enable us to pull juice out of the vegetables. The, you know, the most important, you know, environmental consideration is we want to protect the vegetables from the flow of air, which supports the growth of molds and we want to get them submerged under liquid. We could just add water and sometimes people do, but you get a, um, a much more concentrated flavor if you don't add water and you just pull the water out of the vegetables. You let the vegetables ferment under their own juices. So once you shred the vegetables, uh, salt them. Salt them lightly. There's no necessity to measure the salt. A lot of people assume that this is extremely technical and exacting. Um, a lot of the old world traditions of uh, fermenting vegetables, people used a lot of salt because those vegetables represented survival. Um, you know, they were possibly the only vegetables that people would eat for six or eight months of the year. So, you know, more salt was sort of like more insurance that their vegetables would stay good longer. But if you're making small batches, that you'll probably eat within a few weeks. You know, there's just no necessity to use a high concentration of salt. You know, the USDA will tell you 2.25% salt. Uh, most of the contemporary small batch commercial manufacturers that I've talked to are using closer to 1.5% salt. But honestly, there's no need to measure it. What, what, I, what I would suggest is lightly salt the vegetables as you're chopping them up, then mix everything up, and then just taste them. Oh, taste them raw before you put them in the jar. Just get a sense of... Yeah. Just evaluate the saltiness of it. Uh -huh. And, and it's, it's always easier to add salt than to subtract salt. So salt really lightly from the beginning and then just add a little bit at a time until it tastes good to you. So you have your shredded vegetables. They're salted. Then what, what you need to do to, to try to get the vegetables out, the salt starts to pull water out of the vegetables through a process called osmosis. Mm -hmm. But then we can speed that up um, basically by bruising the vegetables and breaking down cell walls. And what, on a small scale, what I like to do is just get my hands in there and squeeze. Like have the veggies in a big bowl and I'm just mixing the veggies and squeezing a handful at a time. Um, and that and it makes the vegetables kind of wilt 
wilt and um, uh, breaks down some of the cell walls. And after five minutes of that, they're nice and juicy. You pick up a handful and squeeze it and it's like a wet sponge. All this juice comes out. And then you know that when you go to stuff it in the jar, pack it in the jar, as you force the vegetables down and expel air pockets, um, uh, liquid will rise and cover the vegetables. Once you get the vegetables submerged under their own juices in the jar, you know, then I usually put the lid on the jar and just leave it on the counter. And then, you know, each day for a few days, um, I'll open up the top. You have to release pressure because this is a life process and respiration is going on and it's producing carbon dioxide. So I release the pressure and then I go ahead and just press everything down to make sure that the vegetables that have floated to the top get submerged. So I'll just do that each day for a few days. You know, most of the carbon dioxide production will happen relatively quickly in those earliest days. And then, you know, after maybe three days, I like to start tasting it. You know, I, I mean, I, I mean, I love my kraut, you know, at, at six or eight weeks, um, but you don't have to wait that long. And what I've learned is that, you know, many people prefer the milder flavors of a short fermentation to the more acidic flavors of a long fermentation. The acids accumulate over time. And, um, you know, the most important thing is to have something that you're going to enjoy eating. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. I got a quick question. You're, you're talking about the acids accumulating over a longer time. Do you see different bacteria present at different parts of the fermentation process as well? Yes. Fermenting vegetables, sauerkraut, kimchi, sour pickles, etc., is a successional process. So you have um, you know, a broad community of bacteria that, that, are, that are part of it, and at different stages of its development, different bacterial strains become dominant. And specifically, you know, as the environment becomes more acidic, different strains just are better adapted to thrive in an increasingly acidic environment. So yes, your you know, community composition definitely shifts over the course of the fermentation. You know, in terms of when is it ready, that's it's highly subjective. The the tradition in places where this was survival was you you know, you filled up a barrel or a pit or a crock or whatever your vessel was, and then you would just take some out every week or two, you know, to get you through that week and it would just keep getting stronger as it went. You know, some people prefer the flavor of a very strong one. Some people prefer the flavor of a very mild one. If you're if you're tasting it every few days and it gets to the point where you think, I don't want this to get any stronger, well, chances are anyone listening to this has a fermentation slowing device in their kitchen, which is what a refrigerator amounts to. So you just move it to the refrigerator. But, um, you know, sometimes people approach this from a purely utilitarian standpoint. They want to know, when am I going to get the most probiotic uh, value out of this? The question is, which of the which of the bacteria are you concerned about? Well, and 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 really, I mean, if we're thinking about immune function, digestive function, 
like we're thinking about biodiversity. Right. You know, it's not that there's like a single bacteria that's going to make everything better for us. It's about, you know, enriching the bacterial community. And, you know, that's really what, you know, bacterially rich foods, probiotic foods do is that is they, um, you know, build biodiversity. So, you know, actually eating the crowd at different stages of its development with different, you know, dominant bacterial strains is a great way of contributing towards biodiversity in the gut. Yeah, that's that sounds great. What's your take on the difference between live bacteria like you find in the fermented foods and the pills that people buy in their uh, supplement store? Well, I mean, those are mostly live bacteria also. I mean, that's why people are paying so much for them. That's why they're, you know, usually in the refrigerated section. Mm. Um, so, I mean, th- those are also live bacteria. I mean, uh, so, okay, most probiotic uh, uh, capsules are proprietary bacterial strains that have undergone um, extensive testing. And there's this, you know, incredible body of research on, on probiotics and, you know, people taking, you know, this probiotic supplement had fewer common colds of shorter duration, less severity than people not on the, on the one. I mean, there, there's just an incredible body of work from, you know, clinical trials that, that people have constructed, but they're only investing that in proprietary strains. I mean, no one is investing that kind of money to do clinical trials for sauerkraut or other, um, you know, traditional fermented foods that are really in the public domain. It's just sitting in your kitchen. <laughs> My observation is that most probiotic capsules are a billion copies of a single cell or of two or three, you know, different strains. And, and you know, obviously they can be helpful, but, you know, they're not really building biodiversity in the same way as these traditional foods that have, you know, uncountable different strains. Right. And really, like when we're talking about the microbiome, when we're talking about healthy intestinal bacteria, we're talking about biodiversity. We're not talking about specific strains. And, and just to, you know, make things a little bit more confusing – you know, bacteria by their nature are not genetically stable. Bacteria, um, bacterial genetics are incredibly fluid. And, you know, many microbiologists are coming to the conclusion that it's inappropriate to even use the concept of species on bacteria because any bacteria could become any other kind of bacteria, um, you know, if it had access to the right genetic material and, you know, a reason to, um, you know, change its, its capabilities. So bacteria are by nature are by nature fluid. So to me, that really sort of strengthens the argument for biodiversity. That biodiversity is the most important thing, and that um, you know expanding the range of genetic material in our intestines that's available to you know the the trillion bacteria that are in residence there, you know, is really the best way to give them uh, you know adaptability and and resilience in order to be able to keep us healthy. It makes so much sense. I mean, even, you know, if you just take a a look at very basic ecological thought, the more diversity you have, the more stable the system. Yeah, sure. 
I talked earlier about how skeptical I am that incorporating a single food can cure a disease, you know, but, but I will say I have heard many dramatic stories from people who just begin incorporating a range of different live culture, uh, um, bacterially rich fermented foods into their diet. And sometimes people have very, um, you know, dramatic experiences, especially if these foods are new to them. You know, sometimes people just find that digestive problems that they've been living with for, um, you know, sometimes for decades just go away by the introduction of bacteria that improve digestion. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a worthwhile experiment, right? You could try it for a month or two and see how you feel. And it sounds like it's easy to DIY this up in your own kitchen. Yeah, absolutely it is. And also increasingly, there are live culture fermented vegetables around. If you go to the supermarket and you buy you know, sauerkraut in a can, that doesn't have live cultures. I mean, it was fermented with live bacteria from the cabbage, as all sauerkraut is, but then it was heat processed so it could be in a can. But uh, you know, at, at farmer's markets, at, at food co-ops and natural food stores, you know, in most parts of the U.S. at this point, you can find um, you know, local and regional brands of fermented vegetables, you know, or you can make them yourself. The process is really easy. Chop, salt, squeeze, fill the jar, and wait. Sounds really simple. Do you ever add any kind of flavoring or spices or anything to give it, you know, a little kick? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, you can, you can, um, I mean, first of all, the vegetables themselves are flavorful. You're adding salt, which is adding some flavor. They're fermenting, which is added the, adding the acidity. But sure, then you, you can season it in all kinds of different ways. Juniper berries are a classic uh, German way of uh, flavoring it. Caraway seeds are an Eastern European one. If you go into Russia, sometimes people will add um, cranberries or raisins or apples to their sauerkraut. In the Korean tradition, uh, generally, it's uh, spi- the kimchi is spicy with chili peppers and garlic and ginger um, and shallots. But I, you know, I also meet people who are doing very, you know, innovative seasoning. So like um, curry krauts using, uh, you know, turmeric and, and cumin and different kinds of curry seasonings. A young woman came to one of my workshops with vanilla kraut, where she she minced a vanilla bean and put it in with the with the cabbage, and it was shockingly good. Really, I had a student whose grandmother was from a town in Poland where everybody bulked up their sauerkraut with mashed potatoes. So, I, I mean, this is a very very versatile process. You can add you know cooked vegetables to it. You always want to cool those off first. You can add um, you know any kind of seasoning you like. You can add fruit. Um, you know, in the Korean tradition, often fish sauce or sometimes little dried shrimp or anchovies are added. So, you know, it's possible to add fish and, and meat. It's just an incredibly versatile process. You know, sauerkraut is just the beginning. Sounds like once you get started with this, you can just kind of follow your nose, so to speak, as, as you eat your way through through the results. Well, absolutely. And also, you know, when, once you start tuning into fermentation, I mean, it just turns out that an incredible range of foods and beverages that people enjoy in, in every part of the world. Talk to us a bit about the beverages. Well, I mean, you know, the most obvious ones would be beer and wine. You know, all alcoholic beverages involve fermentation. You know, alco- the only way that we have ever figured out to 
create alcohol is fermentation of sugars. You know, distillation concentrates it in, you know, liquor and and spirits, but it has to be created by fermentation in the first place before it can be concentrated. So, you know, there's, there's alcoholic beverages, coffees fermented, certain varieties of tea are fermented. Oh, yeah. In fact, much of the tea leaves, in fact, when you were talking about cutting up the cabbage and then mashing it up and bruising it. I was thinking of how that's how tea is made. Many kinds of tea where they will kick off the oxidation process by mashing it up and then at a certain point they heat it to stop that and give it a certain flavor. But most tea is is fermented. I hadn't thought about it being fermented that way. Um, sure, and and pu'er would be the the style of tea that is you know fermented for a long time, where the fermentation really contributes very uh, distinctive flavors to it. Oh yeah, that stuff's amazing, and you know, and it's it's better after about twenty years too. And then there's all these lightly fermented soft drinks. So, uh, you know, the most famous one probably that your viewers would be or that your listeners would be familiar with would be kombucha. But, you know, kombucha is just one example. You know, anyone who has traveled in the Caribbean may have encountered a lightly fermented soft drink called mabi, which is made out of the bark of, of a tree that's also called mabi. What about ginger? Sure, ginger beer, that's a a classic lightly fermented beverage. Uh And how would somebody make that at home? Well, there's a number of ways of doing it. The, The most straightforward way is to create a starter called a ginger bug, where you grate some uh, fresh ginger. It has to be organic. Most of the non-organic ginger available in the U.S. has undergone irradiation, which kills whatever kinds of organisms might have been part of it. Right, which is what which is what we're trying to promote here. Right. Um, So so you use, you know, the organic regulations don't allow for irradiation. So you can be reasonably sure that your um, organic ginger is not going to have been irradiated. So you make a ginger bug by simply grating a little bit of raw ginger, including the skin, and adding a little bit of dechlorinated water and some sugar. And just let, you know, putting that in a little uh, jar or cup or bowl and just um, leaving it for a couple days, stirring it each day. That'll start to get a little bubbly. Once that starts to get bubbly, then you can go ahead and slice some ginger or grate it and then boil it. So you make a decoction of some other ginger. Mm-hmm. You get a fuller extraction of the flavor that way. Then you cool that out, uh, cool that down, strain it, add sugar to it, you know, to whatever level of sugariness, and then add your ginger bug as the starter. After a day or two, the whole thing will get bubbly. Then you can bottle it. Uh, seal it in the bottles, and the bottles will carbonate. Okay, because I just love this stuff. Let me ask just a few follow-up questions, because I want to make sure that I'll be able to go like start some of this this afternoon. What kind of thing do you make the bug in? Do you just use like a jar or a... I usually just do it in a jar. Just like a regular canning jar? Yep. Okay, and then what, do, do I screw a top on? Do I... It's like a pint-sized one. It doesn't um, matter. Totally doesn't matter. Totally doesn't matter. In general, you know, the the source of your organisms is primarily the food you're fermenting if you're working with raw foods. You know, there are always organisms floating around in the air, but that's really uh, secondary. Um, uh, you know, what, what's mostly important is what's on your food. So, you know, whether things are sealed in a jar or left open just isn't that important. Got it. 
the important thing is to stir it, to sort of like move it around. That really distributes whatever activity is beginning to happen. You know, it mixes some oxygen in, which does speed things up. Okay. When it comes to bottling, because I have these like terrifying images of bottles exploding. Yeah. This is a real issue with lightly fermented beverages. See, the difference between a lightly fermented beverage and, let's say, wine is that in wine, you know, all or virtually all of the sugar has been converted into alcohol. Mm -hmm. With a lightly fermented beverage, it's still sweet. So there's still lots of fermentable sugars. And if the fermentation proceeds uh, long enough in the vessel, you know, in, in the sealed bottle, the bottle can explode. And I hear stories all the time of bottles exploding, of uh, you know, people's kombucha, people's water kefir, other kinds of lightly fermented beverages. So what I like to do is actually bottle them in you know, recycled plastic soda bottles. And the, you know, the one virtue of plastic in this context is that you can feel how pressurized your bottles are becoming and then move them into the refrigerator before they get too pressurized. Right. And once they're in the refrigerator, it slows it down. Yeah, it slows it way down. I mean, I still wouldn't recommend leaving it for months and months because Mm -hmm. bottles can still explode. But, you know, it just slows the process way, way down. And, um, you you know, you could, you know, organize a party and have your friends come over on Friday or something, uh, you know, while it's sitting in the fridge. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. You talked about kefir. What's that? Kefir, or you know, people might think of it as kefir. It is, I mean, if you just say kefir, it's a milk culture um, made with what's called a scoby, a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast. And the kombucha scoby are these little blobs that look something like florets of cauliflower. And you just plop them in the milk. Um, about a tablespoon of kefir grains will do for about a quart of milk. Um, leave it for about 24 hours, and all you know this incredibly complex community of organisms with kefir. It's more than 30 distinct microorganisms will ferment the milk and uh, uh, you know change the texture of it, make it a little bit effervescent, change the flavor, make it acidic, and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful culture. Now there's another culture that has become known in the U.S. as water kefir, which has no relationship to kefir, except that it's another example of a scoby, a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast. In this case, they look like little um, uh, uh, crystalline structures. Sometimes they're called water crystals. Mm -hmm. Uh, They come from Mexico, where they're known as uh, uh, tibicos, and they can be used to ferment fruit juices, coconut water, sugar water. It's really a pretty versatile culture that's another approach to making lightly fermented beverages. Could you do this one with uh, ginger as well? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You know, the trick with these scobies is you have to find them. You know, wild fermentation is fermentation based on the organisms that are part of the food itself, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the cabbage or the ginger. And so, you know, what's easy about wild fermentation is you don't have to obtain specific cultures from somewhere. They're just on the food that you are fermenting. 
So if people wanted this kefir, or the scobies, or that kind of thing. Well, I mean, your website is a, a treasure house of resources. So well, thank you. Um, we can put that on the show notes page. I have links to all kinds of fermentation related resources. If you wanted to try to make sauerkraut, you, you know, you could read a little bit more about you know what's involved in, in making it. You can also um, uh, you know order copies of my books through my website. See where I have workshops coming up. I I do a lot of uh, traveling. I, I mentioned I just got back from Alaska. In a couple of weeks, I'll, I'll be doing workshops in um, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, on my website, you can find details of my upcoming workshops, um, uh, you know, as well as links to, you know, all kinds of amazing fermentation related resources that are out there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of Galaxy Central for fermentation resources, that website of yours. Well, sweet. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Wild, wildfermentation.com. Cool. Uh, just a couple other things real quickly, and then I think we'll wind this down here, and I'm going to go get some cabbage from the farmer's market and go get me some ginger and uh, spend the afternoon uh, playing mad scientist. Nice. Are you familiar with the uh, southern Chinese and Taiwanese delicacy, stinky tofu, chodofu? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've I had it um, actually in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Have you ever made it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you need you need a specific mold to to grow that, which grows on rice straw. So the traditional way of doing it is to um, let the tofu sit in rice straw for a few days, and it develops this this um, beautiful white mold. Like each piece of tofu looks like a cloud or something, and this mold just changes the texture of the of the tofu and makes it so creamy, you know. And then, typically, once the mold grows, then you would put it in a, a saltwater brine. Uh, sometimes flavored with chili peppers or other things and, and fermented in there. There's a lot of different ways of fermenting tofu, a lot of different methods. I mean, the tofu that we can buy that's, that's you know, widely available in, in supermarkets here uh, is not fermented. But there's a lot of different methods for fermenting it, some of which create very strong flavors and some of which are, are, are milder. Yeah, I, I can remember smelling the stinky tofu stand from like blocks away when I was there. It's, uh, it's amazing stuff. Just try asking, you know, someone from China what it smells like when they walk into a cheese shop. I mean, <laughs> well, and, and here's, yes, here's something I found interesting. People that like the stinky tofu also like the stinky cheeses. Mm. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, re- really what, what I would offer is that you know, most products of fermentation are what we would describe as acquired tastes. We're not we're not born loving these flavors, and you know sometimes people want to know you know is there a sharp distinction between food that is fermented and food that is rotten? Yeah, that was actually my next question. Um, you know, there is no sharp objective line between those two. There's a, there's just a huge aspect of um, you know cultural relativism and you know what people are used to. But you know, I, as someone who loves stinky cheeses, I mean, I've invited people over to share cheese with me and had them walk in the door, like smell the cheese from the other side of the house, and say. 
did something die in here? And they would never for a minute think about putting that near their mouth. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, even like among our friends, you know, we can see that there are just, you know, sort of different, you know, thresholds of, of smell and flavor that we'll find accessible. Um, but then, you know, when you get into some of the, you know, traditions of fermenting fish and marine mammals, um, you know, if people haven't been exposed to these earlier in their, in, in their life, like, you know, if they first encounter it when when they're 25 years old, they're not likely to find it extremely accessible. Yeah. You know, there's just a huge component of acculturation, you know, that, that's involved in this, like acquiring the taste. And you can only acquire it through exposure. Yeah. Well, my friends that encouraged me to, to eat the stinky tofu said, try it three times before you decide you don't like it. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good advice. Yeah. No, yeah. I, think, I, think, I think that's great advice. And I, I think, you know, sometimes with fermented vegetables, people assume that, let's say, children are not going to like them because they have strong flavors. But I mean, you know, my, my observation is that, you know, any child that's exposed to the flavors of sour pickles and sauerkraut and kimchi when they're very young are going to take to it. And, you know, the problem is if you wait until they're seven and then you present it to them and they've never seen or smelled anything like that, then they're going to think it's nasty. So, uh, you know, I think exposing people really young to these smells and these flavors, uh, you know, just is a is a really great way of getting them used to things that are going to, you know, really be supportive of, you know, healthy development and um, and well-being. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the cultural piece as well. And I. I think about those pickles that my grandmother used to make, and she had a pickle barrel, by the way. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's something about a loving grandmother that's offering you up this stuff she made in the context of watching the rest of your family devour it with glee. Mm. It, it's hard not to fall in love with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sandra, any, uh, any closing comments or thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with before we uh, wind this thing down? I guess, you know, what I'd like to just say in closing is, you know, fermentation is ancient. We don't know the we don't know the origins of any fermented foods or beverages because we have been eating them so long. They've been part of human culture for so long. Like we didn't know about bacteria. We didn't know about microorganisms when we started working with them. You know, what we now understand is that, you know, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by elaborate communities of organisms. And so, you know, the, the practice of fermentation is just, you know, harnessing those microorganisms and, and working with them. Um, you know, but the amazing thing to me is that, you know, for thousands of years without microscopes, without knowing about these organisms, people have been making this, uh, these foods and sort of, you know, perfecting the, 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 the processes. So, you know, in terms of people's fears, you know, you just have to recognize that this has been part of our, um, you know, th this is like fermentation and, and fermentation practices are an essential aspect of the cultural legacy that we have inherited from our ancestors. And, and fermentation is just an integral part of, you know, how people have made use of the food resources available to them in different parts of the world. Well, it's been so delightful to have you on the show today and and I'm really excited about going and trying some of this myself. Well, great. Thanks so much for your interest. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, 
please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. Thank you.